And so we're moving into session four in your study notes, in your guide there. And as you're finding your seats, um, I have a confession to make, and I know that this is not going to endear me to some of you, but so be it. I am not a nature person. I have tried, but I, I just am not a nature person. My idea of enjoying nature is a five-star hotel with a screened-in porch. And that's a little ironic because we live in a part of Pennsylvania that has lots of nature. I mean, it's very pretty. And in our yard, we have these huge oak trees and maple trees. And, you know, they're about twice the diameter of the ones that are outside the church building. Uh, and people who come to our neighborhood, they always talk about, oh, we love those big old trees. And, you know, just just feels so warm and, and, and inviting. And always in my heart, my response to that is, oh, yeah? Well, you know, wait till October rolls around because then, you know what those big old trees do? They drop all their nature in your yard and it takes days and days and days to clean up all that nature. So I was getting ready to uh, go on a trip with Serge. It was an overseas trip. I was going to be gone about 10 days. Uh, it was in the fall. And as I was getting ready to go, it had been a, a busy uh, stretch leading up to that. So I had decided, you know what, I really need just a couple days of, you know, lower pace, downtime. Monday's going to be my last day in the office. Thursday's when we're flying out. Tuesday, Wednesday, all I need to do on Tuesday and Wednesday is just get packed for the trip. And because all these trees drop their nature on our yard and we have, we have a deck, a balcony in the back, that balcony was built so that it doesn't connect down to the ground. So it's railing all the way around, and the leaves get like you know knee high in there once, once they all fall in there. And I discovered the year after we moved in, into that house that if you don't get all of those leaves out before it rains and freezes, then you also get to refinish the deck the next spring. So all, two things I need to do, pack and get the leaves off of you know the deck. So. Tuesday uh, rolls around, and you know, I get up, I'm loving life, I get an email from the conference organizers. Hey, so-and-so just called, they have the flu, they're not going to be able to come, could you teach their track as well? We don't have anyone else who could cover it. Okay, sure, yeah, I, I could do that, but of course that means I have to go into the office, I don't have all the stuff I need, so I've got to go into the office to get some books and get some notes, and, you know, oh, Patrick! We didn't think you were going to be in today. No, no, I'm not in. I know, I know, really. But while you're here, you know, we have this thing with the budget and, you know, one more thing. And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying desperately to get out of the office and people keep swinging by. And internally, like, I'm, I'm just getting a little more, you know, keyed up all the whole time. I'm like, you people are stealing my time. Like, you know, I got to get out. two things, pack and get the leaves done, right? <laughs> So I finally get out of the office, and uh, some missionaries that I knew who were going to also be at the conference, I had emailed them a couple weeks ago and said, hey, do you need me to bring anything for you? And I, I don't know if you know this, but you know, as, as an actual missionary, it's my sworn obligation to tell you, if you ever go someplace and visit missionaries, it's a sacred obligation. There are things that they can't buy in their country. You have to bring them. Like, you know, you, you're going to have a much smaller house in heaven if you didn't bring these people the things that they needed. So, and I don't, I don't remember, you know, where they were at the time, but red licorice, microwave popcorn, and yogurt-covered raisins were the things you could not get for love or money in their country. And so, you know, 
Tuesday afternoon, I'm getting this email that says, hey, thanks so much for offering to bring things. I'm like, two weeks ago I offered. Like, I'm in the two days. I, don't, I can't. So I'm running around to go, you know, get the licorice, and, the, and it's not all at the same store. And so, you know, I come, and, you know, I get, I get bent out of shape, and Wednesday rolls around, and things are a little busy, and because I was busy on Tuesday, I didn't do all my laundry, so I'm not getting packed. As, and so finally, you know, Things are packed on Wednesday, but I still haven't done those blasted leaves. So I take a deep breath, and by now it's dark, and so you know I'm out, and I'm on the deck, and again, I'm not an outdoor guy. I don't have like all the gear, so I got Parker's old Dora the Explorer headlamp on, so I can, because you gotta muck out the gutters, you know, and then you gotta, and the leaf blower doesn't do you any good, because it won't blow it like over the side. You're like literally having to like scoop the leaves, and. And the whole time, internally, I'm just like, oh, I can't believe this. Here I, I am out here doing this. And what is wrong with those people at work? Why couldn't they leave me alone? And how come I have to run it all over looking for yogurt-covered braisins and <laughs> out here doing the... And who even builds a deck that doesn't have some way... I mean, this had steps. I just blow them right off and be done. Who, who does this? It never occurred to me in that moment, as I was wrestling through those circumstances, Jesus had already done the most gracious thing he could think of for me. I think we're going to see that sort of dynamic in our passage this morning. So we're picking up again in uh, Mark 6. Uh, and this, this passage immediately follows the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, the connection point between, you know, what I think I was experiencing and what the disciples were experiencing is in the summary statement. It's easy to miss Jesus when we feel like we are trapped by our circumstances or that God has left us to fend for ourselves. In order to rediscover Jesus, we need to realize that Jesus can often see hidden areas of unbelief in our lives and put us in places where that unbelief is exposed so that we can run to him in repentance and faith. Jesus wants to deliver us from the hardness of our hearts, not from our circumstances. So, again, we're going to be looking at this passage through you know, two lenses. The first lens is, here's what the disciples can see, and then we're going to go back and we're going to read through the passage again and look at it from, here's what Jesus is seeing. So, as we read through the passage, you know, just kind of put your blinders on and say, if I was one of the disciples... What can I see? What can I understand? What am I experiencing? So, verse 45. Immediately after the meal, so that was the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus compelled his disciples to get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was strongly against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by when they saw him walking on the lake, and they thought that he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Stop being afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. They were utterly astonished, for they had not understood about what Jesus had done with the loaves. Their hearts were still being calloused by unbelief. 
So we're told in the parallel passage in John chapter 6 that uh, some of the crowd who had been there for the feeding and the teaching had wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. And so part of what he's doing is he's getting the disciples out of that environment so that he can dismiss the crowd. But, uh, as we mentioned yesterday, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, Jesus is also seeing not just the external actions of the disciples, but the internal heart dynamics. But if you are just a disciple, what are you seeing? What are you experiencing? Well, Jesus compels them to get in the boat. It's not optional. He forces them to get in the boat, go across the lake without him. So all they know is, I don't know what happened. We were supposed to get, we were so busy. Jesus said, come away and get some rest. Saw how that turned out. 5,000 plus people show up. We don't know what to do. Finally, Jesus feeds them. We do all that stuff. We pick up everything. Are we going to get some rest now? No. All of a sudden, Jesus rushes us into the boat. It's night. Puts us in the boat. Tells us we've got to get going. And he's not coming with us. So here they are. They're alone after they've had this huge effort to feed 5,000 people. After they've already had several days of being busy and worn out in ministry. And... If you're one of the disciples in the boat, what's Jesus doing? You don't know. You can't see him. You don't know what's going on. So I think it's fair to say that the disciples definitely would have had a sense of felt absence. Where, where is Jesus? What is he doing? How come, how come we're out here? So the passage keeps you know, unfolding. And, you know, here, here are some things I think it would be pretty easy um, you know, to, to imagine the disciples feeling. Not only alone, but does Jesus know what's going on? I mean, it's, it's pretty rough weather out here. Is he paying attention? Does he care? How, how come he's not here to help? Tired says that they're rowing all night. They're straining at the oars. You know, the, the wind is heavily against them. And these were guys who were used to physical labor. These are guys who are, you know, uh, at least some of them were skilled in terms of sailing, in terms of rowing. They would have recognized that, you know, it wasn't just, hey, why don't you guys get out of here? I'll take care of the dishes. I'll dismiss the crowd. You know, get out on the boat. Have a little sailing time. I mean, they are out there. They are straining. It is difficult. They're tired. They're struggling to some extent. Certainly, they're struggling physically. Maybe they're struggling a bit uh, spiritually. There's also a sense of danger. The wind has come up. You know, the boat could capsize. It's not feeling safe. It's, it's not a pleasant, you know, leisure sort of cruise. And we're going to see when Jesus shows up, they're afraid. And by the way, Jesus addresses them. They're not just afraid when he shows up. There's already fear that's been in their hearts. It's really easy to feel like we've been uh, abandoned by Jesus when we focus on circumstances. It's easy to lose track of the fact that Jesus is our big brother, and he only does things in our lives that the Father knows will be good for us, that will ultimately grow us, that will ultimately cause us to be more loving. And yet in the moment, you know, if, you, if we would have been there and taken a survey of the disciples, do you think that that's what they would have been saying? Probably not. It certainly doesn't work that way in my life. So, uh, passage goes on. They've been straining, you know, at, at the oars all night. Uh, very slow progress. Finally starting to get towards the other shore. And they see someone, someone, something coming across the water. Now, of course, you know, if you were in the boat, it's dark. It's, you know, windy, might have been raining. It would have been almost impossible to visually, facially identify that Jesus is coming, right? However, 
how many other people do you know who can walk on water, right? What's the disciples' response, though? They see someone, something coming towards them, and it's terror. They don't know who it is. They're not thinking about what, you know, they just see this thing. They're absolutely afraid. And why are they afraid? Because they feel like they've been abandoned. It's not even really on their radar screen that the person coming is going to be Jesus. So they're absolutely terrified. When Jesus, you know, finally gets to them, uh, you know, he says, take, take courage, it is I. Stop being afraid. So this, the specific verb tense is it's an action that's already in place. They were already afraid. They were already terrified. And when Jesus gets in the boat, the wind stops, and they are completely astonished. I mean, they're just dumbfounded that Jesus is able to control the wind. So it's clear from the disciples' point of view, existentially, they still don't really truly understand who Jesus is, what he's capable of doing. So all of that's kind of the first lens sort of perspective. If you're a disciple, worked hard, fed the 5,000, got you know, bum-rushed into the boat, sent out on a stormy, choppy lake, labored all night. Where's Jesus? He, you know, he's not here. He's not helping. He's even care. Finally, he does show up, scares you know, the living daylights out of you when he does. And his response is, hey, stop being afraid. It's me. Gets in the boat. The wind stops. And they're just gobsmacked. I mean, they're just beside themselves looking at this going, what is going on here? Now, the thing that I find really interesting is, you know, that verse 52 that, that I, you know, mentioned. For the disciples had not understood about what Jesus had done with the lows. Their hearts were hardened. So that's really what gives us that second perspective. If we didn't have that in these verses, we wouldn't, we wouldn't really be able to have that kind of second lens. And the reason why they're having such a hard time making sense of their circumstances, the reason why those circumstances seem so big, so overwhelming to them, is because of the condition of their hearts. It's an interesting word there, the, the word for hardened. In secular Greek, it's used uh, to refer to the calluses that workmen would develop on their hands. And so it, it's, it's something that's hardened over, it's rough, it, uh, it's not soft, it's not pliable. And so, you know, he's really talking about the fact that in terms of posture towards Jesus, this is how the disciples' hearts were. Not only that, the, the specific uh, tense of the verb that he's using is uh, an ongoing, repeated condition that's really the state of their hearts. It's not just that they're having a bad day and so they're not looking for Jesus maybe when they should have been looking for Jesus. At this point in time in their ministry, in their relationship with Jesus, there is not that spiritual receptivity that Jesus really wants to see in them. So their, their hearts have been callous. They've been hardened over. Well, what's caused their hearts to become calloused? Same thing that causes our hearts to be calloused towards Jesus. Sin. More specifically, unbelief. And it's so interesting because in my life, that unbelief is often very subtle. Like, you know, if you, I'm sure if I just came out and said, how many of you believe that Jesus Christ, Son of God, you know, died on the cross for your sins, raised on the third day, seated at the right hand of the Father? We're all going to pass the theology test, right? The formal theology test. 
The functional theology test, however, is what we're seeing in the disciples' hearts, what you're seeing, you know, what we see in our hearts. It's those places when we, we feel like, you know, maybe God really can't be trusted. Is God good to me right now in these circumstances? That's the question I wrestle with when, when I'm struggling with being a spiritual orphan. Or maybe it's the idea that we need to put our hope and faith in something that's, you know, a little more reliable, our own skills, our own ability to control the situation, or, or idols, those sexy false Jesuses that seem to promise us things that we think either God can't give us or won't give us. Sometimes we look to, to our own hard work, right? Our self-generated righteousness, what Paul in Philippians 3 calls confidence in the flesh. My unbelief makes those things seem far more reliable than the Jesus who's hidden then the Jesus who has put me in these circumstances doesn't seem to be paying attention, doesn't seem to care about what's going on. Jesus, on the other hand, in this passage, he can see so much more. Because he sees not just what the disciples are doing, he sees what they desire. And their desires and dispositions are not matching up with their actions. So all throughout these verses, Jesus is seeing what the disciples cannot Unbelief is callousing their hearts, and it's making them hard and unreceptive to grace. And so because he loves them too much to leave them in that condition, he again and again is going to orchestrate situations where the disciples, again and again, have opportunities to see just how much they actually need Jesus. Jesus knows that the disciples suffer from the same thing that I suffer from, a lack of faith that I'm God's child that he loves me, that he knows what's happening in my life, that he's with me, that he'll take care of me, and that true freedom comes from being wholly dependent on Jesus. Not on myself, not on the things I can do, not the myth of Patrick the God who can control all things in his universe. And so let's look at the passage again, and let's, this time let's look at it from Jesus' perspective. So Jesus has just demonstrated his power, feeding of the 5,000. He knows that the disciples have not picked up the lesson. Remember from last night, what's the lesson? Who are you going to trust? Who do you look for? When circumstances, when needs are overwhelming, where are you going to go? What are you going to put your faith in? And he knows that the disciples still haven't, have not gotten that yet. And so what he's doing is he is creating an opportunity for them to see their need again. He is very intentional about putting them in the boat. It isn't accidental, it isn't incidental. It's a strong word, compelled. Forced them to get into the boat, does not get in the boat with them, sends them off. Now, the disciples don't know what Jesus is doing, but we know what Jesus is doing, right? After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. While they're alone in the dark, struggling in the wind and the waves, thinking that Jesus had abandoned them, what's Jesus actually doing? He's praying for them. And he's watching. He's watching over them. He can see them. Now the text doesn't tell us what he was praying about, but I think fair, fair to assume that at least some of those prayers were about the disciples, about the condition of their heart, about the things that they're struggling through. Notice as well that Jesus waits. Uh, verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, 
and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind uh, was strongly against them. So he sees all this. When does he come to intervene? Shortly before dawn, he went out to them. He is intentional in not going to them right away. He knows what's going on in their life. He is watching. He is praying for them. And he is waiting. All this time when they're tired and alone and struggling, feeling like they're in danger, feeling like they're afraid, Jesus is not unaware. He's waiting. He doesn't go out right away. Why? He's giving them the time and space to let conditions get worse, to give them a chance to turn to him again. A chance to see what an illusion self-sufficiency actually is. To realize that there was more going on in the feeding of the 5,000 than just coming up with some bread and some fish. He knows their struggles. He can see their effort at the oars. Yet he still hasn't moved off the mountain. He's waiting to see what their heart response is going to be. Interesting aside here, we're never told in this passage if the disciples ever find out what Jesus was up to when they were out on the lake. As far as we know, they went to their grave and never knew what Jesus was doing that evening. He was intentional. He was thoughtful. He was doing the most loving thing he could possibly do for them. And yet they felt alone, scared, tired, worn out. A sense of, God, where are you? Circumstances certainly seem bigger than Jesus at the moment. Now, Finally, Jesus does come. He's crossing the lake. He's coming out to them. And the thing that's so interesting to me is, so that, you know, the disciples have two options here. They're on the lake. They're clearly seeing someone, something walking across the water. The two options are, well, Jesus. And by the way, remember everything that's happened, you know, in Mark leading up to this? Mark 4, Jesus already calmed the storm, healed the demon-possessed man, raised Jairus' daughter back from uh, the dead, has healed a bleeding woman. Mark 5, cast out demons. He, uh, he's healed other people. And then as we've just seen, fed 5,000 people. So one option is, ah, oh, finally, Jesus is coming. The only person that we know who could walk on water, who could show up, I, yay, we're getting delivered. He's going to be here. He's a, so that's option one. Option two is, it's a ghost! And they go with option two. Instead of looking for the deliverance coming at the hand of their father, the best they can come up with is supernatural enemy against us, be terrified. And the thing that's so interesting about that is that their circumstances has, at this point, so defined their view of Jesus he almost seems beside the point to them. It's an indicator of what's going on in their hearts. Why, why would it be Jesus? Jesus doesn't care about us. We were so busy serving him, we didn't even get a break. Drug us out to the countryside, 5,000 people show up. Tells us to take care of them. That, that was a nightmare. That took forever. Puts us in a boat, sends us out on the lake. We've been out here all night. We're struggling. He's not paying attention. He doesn't care. Of course, when we see someone coming towards us, why would that be Jesus? You can, you can hear that kind of heart dynamic that you know, is happening in their lives. So Jesus finally shows up, and, and he's drawing near to them physically, but he's also drawing near to them spiritually. 
Remember, for Jesus, the issue wasn't, how are we going to come up with the bread? How are we going to come up with the fish? And for Jesus, the issue is not, how are we going to make it across the lake? How are we going to finally get out of this boat and get on the other side? It's what's going on in their hearts. Who do you trust? What do you believe about me? Who is the one person who can do for you what you cannot do for yourselves? So they're absolutely astonished at this outward manifestation of his power when he calms the storm because inwardly they've already so doubted who he is. The reality is that Jesus can see their deepest needs and he is trying to help them at their most profound level. But because of the hardness of their hearts, they're missing it. They're not seeing it. Now, I fairly confess, it never occurred to me when I was out there on that deck, when it was dark, and I'm getting ready to leave the next day for a 10-day trip, doing the blasted leaves, that Jesus was actually doing something gracious in my life. Think about what he has orchestrated in my life you know, uh, up until then. Changes the plans for the conference and the teaching. He actually wants me to talk to him about what I'm going to teach. <gasps> Shock! Patrick, if you're going to go speak on my behalf, maybe you should know what I would like to say. And so I've given you the opportunity to teach something that you're not very familiar with. It isn't something that you have a lot of notes on. It's not business as usual. Why didn't you talk to me about that? You know what? I, I probably have some really good ideas. I know a lot of the people there. They're good folks. I know what they need more than you know what they need. Is that what I saw? No. Oh, my gosh. Seriously? He's sick? Okay, yes, I can do it. Go, go into the office. Everybody is, can you help with this? Can you help? What about this? What about that? What was the response to my heart? You're stealing my time. Stop it. Two days, all I have to do is leave and pack. It doesn't include any of you guys, right? <laughs> Jesus is saying, I can work through you. When you are feeling out of sorts, when it's too much, when you don't have enough, that's the reminder. That, that's, that's a present from me wrapped up with a bow that says, don't rely on false, weak things like your ability, your effort, your schedule. I'm bent out of shape because Patrick the God is having his will thwarted by other people interrupting my schedule. Jesus is trying to remind me, there is no such thing as Patrick the God, right? There's Jesus, and I'm here, and I'm what you need, and I'm what those people need. I can work through you, even when you're worn out, even when you're pressed, but you have to come to me. Come, listen, come, have open hands. Running errands, just running around town to pick up the stuff for the missionaries. What a perfect time to have personal worship. I never really have time to just sit, listen to worship music. You know, you're in the car the whole time. That whole time I could have been happy, excited, spending time worshiping Jesus, really starting to get... And the thing is, why did I need those two days? Why were those two days so important to me? I felt worn out, and it wasn't just physical tiredness. Like the disciples spiritual tiredness as well. I, I can't rejuvenate myself spiritually. Only Jesus can do that. And so he's given me a task where if I'm going to complete the task, I, I really can't do anything other than be with him. Totally missed it. Did not see it at all. And finally, the gutters and the leaves, 
what a perfect time to be out there praying. I mean, it's dark. No one else can really be out there with you. You know, it's a mucky kind of job. All of that. That could have been an hour spent talking to Jesus, pouring out my heart, talking about what do you want, you know, what do I need to do to be your representative in the situation that I'm going into? Here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I'm doubting you. Jesus, what else do you see in my heart that's going to get in the way of me trusting you and loving you and serving you? Is that where my heart was? Of course not. Stupid leaves. Cannot believe that I am out here. The, my best intentions for those two days, if you will, my focus discipline, didn't accomplish what I thought that it would. And, you know, I think that that's a pretty regular thing, like in our spiritual lives, because rarely does discipline accomplish what desperation readily does. If I'm going to see my need for Jesus and cast myself wholeheartedly on him, I need to be able to do that despite, you know, doubts and worries and circumstances. And so each one of those things that pushes us to the point where we say, I don't know what's going on here, is a reminder from Jesus, come to me. I'm the only one who can give you what you need, Patrick. And the idea that your discipline is going to accomplish that is sheer fallacy. That If we can learn to see that, that ongoing desperation, when is it too much? When do I feel out of control? When does he see, seem uh, absent? When is he calling me to do things that I don't have the resources for? Simple things. Loving the other sinners who might live in your household. Reaching out to neighbors who don't yet know who I am. Continuing to extend ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. All of those things should create some desperation in our heart that push us back to Jesus. All right, we want to give you about another 15 minutes or so to uh, reflect. Uh, you can use the questions in your guide if those are helpful. Uh, or maybe Jesus wants to talk with you about something else. So I'll give you about 15 minutes and then I'll close this in prayer. We'll finish up with a little bit of worship.